0: Reading from Acts 21 and 22. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who was recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear me witness." From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. I was on my way and drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of, of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, "'Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly "'because they will not accept your testimony about me.' And I said, "'Lord, they themselves know "'that in one synagogue after another "'I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you.' "'And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, "'I myself was standing by and approving "'and watching over the garments of those who killed him. "'And he said to me, "'Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles.' Upon this word, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, their tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched out for the whips... Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, w- "Why? What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. Those, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, and he re, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The word of the Lord.
1: I had two friends, particularly close friends, in seminary. One was named Eli and one was named Wibb. And Wibb was uh, not someone you would have expected to meet at seminary. He grew up outside of Nashville and he had uh, raised and made his living up to that point as a fairly high end horse trainer in some of the, uh, the big horse farms that are around Nashville. And he walked into class in boots and jeans and had a belt buckle that was bigger than anything that I'd ever seen before. And he asked questions that you wouldn't expect necessarily of a seminarian, constantly pushing, well, why do you believe that? And where, where does that presupposition come from? And he was a sharp guy. He had done philosophy as an undergrad. And as you got to know Wibb's story, uh, Wibb would tell you that uh, he spent all of high school and all of college dating as many women as he possibly could. And uh, he was also a caustic atheist. He took great pleasure and joy in meeting someone who was of the faith and then telling them how ridiculous it was to believe in Jesus. Well, you might ask, well, how does this person then come to seminary? Well, uh, in months before coming to seminary, uh, Wib had been working for a particularly wealthy family outside Nashville. And they were Christians, and they had been in constant dialogue with them. He would try to dissuade them of their faith and they would try to share their faith with him. And so eventually, on, really kind of on a bet, uh, they, uh, they bought him a ticket to a Billy Graham crusade and said, uh, we don't think you'll go. And he kind of laughed it off. He said, I'll go. And he would tell you later, he said, I cannot explain it to you. I have no idea how this occurred. Uh, but before I knew it, I found myself down front responding to the altar call. And from that point on, uh, Wibb converted and, and became a disciple of Christ. So he went back to this family and he kind of said, I think I need to figure this Christianity thing out. And they said, well, if you want to figure it out, we'll fund you. And so Wibb said, okay, I'm going to go to seminary. And uh, got online and randomly chose Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and ended up there uh, to study uh, for the next three years. Now, Webb ultimately wouldn't uh, go into ministry, but uh, it served the church faithfully. But Webb is a, is a picture to me, he's a reminder that we don't really figure God out. God simply uh, lands on us, right? We don't discover salvation. Salvation discovers us because without God's grace, we can't see. We can't make our eyes that are blind see, and we can't make our hearts that are, are uh, rocks and stony suddenly become flesh. That's beyond our capacity. So the Spirit must come upon us and rescue us. And of course, that is absolutely what's going on in our passage. Right? Just consider, there are two groups of Jews who have come to completely different conclusions about the person of Jesus. You have, on the one hand, a mob of Jews that is very ready to stone Paul to death because they reject the notion that Jesus is Messiah. You've got another group of Jews who have said, yes, we buy that Jesus is Messiah and we're going to surrender everything to follow after him. These two groups of Jews that have come to completely different uh, conclusions regarding the person of Jesus. Now, we know that Paul has gotten himself into a very uh, sticky situation and he gets a, a reprieve. In essence, uh, the Roman cohort shows up in the nick of time. He's about to be stoned by the mob. And uh, has an opportunity to catch his breath. And so you should assume, if you're imagining this, uh, Paul would be bloodied. He's been roughed up by the mob violence. The tribune gets there just in time. And I don't know about you, but I think I would say, uh, tribune, I am so glad to see you. Would you please get me out of here really fast? But that isn't what Paul does. What does he do? He says, "Uh, you know, may I have an opportunity to address the crowd? Pretty... um, in, at least in terms of something that demonstrates Paul's commitment. Now, if you had the opportunity to address this crowd of your countrymen who had decided that they were better off with you dead, what would you say? To extend anger or be like Stephen and extend forgiveness? I forgive you for what you're about to do, or would you remind them that, that God is going to judge all of them and that you will be vindicated in the end? Oddly, when you consider Paul's words, he spends uh, most of his time in his address demonstrating his Jewishness. Now, why would Paul demonstrate his Jewishness in this context? Paul's gotten in trouble with basically all the Jews in Jerusalem. He really finds himself in a pretty uncomfortable spot. We saw that when he arrives at Jerusalem, James pulls him aside and says, listen, all the Jewish Christians have heard that you're telling all of the Jewish converts To forsake the Mosaic law. Of course, Paul says, No, that's not what I'm saying. But the Jewish Christians are mad at him. And then in uh, chapter 21, verse 27, you see a reference to the Jews from Asia are the ones in the temple. Now, they're not converts to Jesus, but they're mad at Paul because they, they basically don't like anything that Paul stands for. And so they're the ones that actually get the mob going. They say, Brothers, help us. Let's attack this man. He's undermining our religion. And so, poor, poor Paul. Basically, every, every Jew, whether a Jewish Christian or a, a traditional Jew, is mad at Paul in this situation. And this is what Paul takes up as he stresses his uh, Judaism to the crowd. Notice with me what he says. He emphasizes his, uh, his faithfulness. He speaks to them actually in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. It is the language of the Hebrews, not the Hebrew language. No one spoke Hebrew at this time. In verse 3, he claims his birthright as a Jew and informs the crowd that he was schooled at the feet of Gamaliel, one of Israel's most prominent uh, professors. In verse 4, or right before that, Paul says he's zealous for God just as they are, and it's been demonstrated in his persecution of the way. Now, the way is the first title of Christianity. Christians are first known as followers of the way. In verse 4, Paul makes it clear that he's persecuted this way uh, unto death. In verse 5, he states that the high priest himself, along with the whole council of elders, will vouch for his Judaism if this list isn't enough. And in verse 19, he reminds them again that he's beaten and imprisoned those who followed the way. And in verse 20, he says that he stood by approvingly as Stephen became the first martyr of the church. In other words, as the Jews are attacking Paul's Judaism and saying you're undermining our religion, Paul is saying, wait a minute, in terms of Jewish credentials, I've got more than anybody gathered here. I am a very serious Jew. But right, he's not the same as those who are gathered and angry at him. Right? There's some difference between them. So even as Paul stresses his Judaism, what has made him different? Why is this tension arisen between the two groups? Well, Paul tells them, he gives them the account of what changed for him, that Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and broke into his world and set him in a new direction. When Jesus appears to him, as Paul recounts the situation, of course, at that point, he's called Saul. The voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when Saul asked who was speaking to him, The voice says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And Paul goes on to explain that he sent to the prophet Ananias, who not only restores to him his sight, but if you look at verses 14 and 15, declares that Paul is peculiarly called as a prophet. He says, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. In other words, Paul is trying to communicate to his brethren essentially this. You think I'm undermining Judaism. That's not so. I've been Jewish to the core, but I see Judaism reaching its proper conclusion in the arrival of Jesus as Messiah. Now, you do not, but perhaps if this is actually the extension of God's grace, And God is the one who reveals himself. We don't discover him. And if he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus, then perhaps you should slow down and listen more carefully and consider what I am trying to say to you. Paul doesn't claim that he's figured out Jesus as Messiah, but claims that Jesus has revealed himself to him. Without God's grace, Paul could not see. And without God's grace, the Jews gathered there cannot see. And without God's grace... We cannot see. The problem is, is that you and I don't like grace. Sometimes we talk like we like grace, but I think in reality we, uh, we prefer not to be at the disposition of being almost, um, almost owned by another person, particularly in this case, God. What do I mean by that? Jonathan Edwards put it this way, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that required Jesus to hang on the cross. Now, if that's true, then I am utterly owned by the one who sacrificed himself to reclaim me from that sin. And we don't like to be utterly owned. We don't like to be utterly disposed and at the mercy of another person. That's an uncomfortable place to be, to be disposed in that fashion. And so we uh, prefer to pull away from God's mercy and to think, well, yes, of course, I need to appreciate God's mercy and his grace to a degree, but God needs to appreciate also what I am doing. And this is actually what we see happening with the Jews who are ready to stone Paul. Uh, I want you to notice a very important um, observation, at least with the Jewish crowd. Most people think, oh, the Jews are upset that grace is being extended to the Gentiles. That is not the case. It is not surprising that God would be gracious towards the Gentiles. But that is what disrupts Paul's speech. And the issue is not that it's being extended. It's how it's being extended. So uh, almost humorously, the whole speech is going fine. Everyone's paying attention until you get basically to one sentence and the crowd goes nuts again, right? To throw dust in the air is historians think that um, that developed when people wanted to stone somebody and they look down at the ground and there's no stones. So they would just grab dust as an act to say, this is what we intend for you. Just wait until we find some stones. Of course, there are no stones in the temple. And so they're throwing dust in the air as a symbol of the rejection of Paul's message. Well, what did Paul say to, uh, to get into so much trouble? Consider verses 21 and 22. He said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. crowd listens to the whole speech. But when Paul says that he would be sent away to the Gentiles, then it's go time again. Let's uh, stone this guy. Now, again telling you it's not surprising that God would extend grace to the Gentiles. And if you think about the Old Testament just for a moment, there are numerous places in which God is gracious towards the Gentile. You think of Ruth, or think of Rahab, or think of Naaman the Syrian, or think of the Ninevites in the book of Jonah. Right? God at various times is willing to extend grace to the Gentiles. But the prophets even speak of a day in which God's grace will pour, be poured out dramatically to the Gentiles. But the notion you almost always get from the Old Testament is that the Gentiles will come to Jerusalem. The Gentiles will come and sacrifice in the temple. Essentially, the Gentiles will come and worship with um, the true Jews being on top, and they will become Jewish in their manner of worship. And now what Paul is saying is we serve a Messiah who's actually sent us out to the Gentiles to bear a message, drawing them in and inviting them, and they don't need to relocate, and they don't need to come to the temple, and they don't need to observe the law. And that's the issue. Not the grace is going to gentiles, but the grace is going out to gentiles and they don't have to become Jewish. This is what infuriates the Jews. They say, "Wait, wait, wait. You're saying the gentiles get the same grace from our God that we do and they haven't had to go through the 2000 years of obedience and law-keeping that we have. In fact, they don't have to do any law-keeping now and they get all of the fruits of this relationship." Right? And you see there are a number of parables that speak to this right, in the New Testament. You certainly think of the parable of the prodigal son, and particularly the elder brother. Right? When the son comes home, the dad throws a party, and the elder brother stands outside, and he says, I'm not going in. Right? Why are you throwing this guy a party? He's squandered the family estate. He's been committed to loose living. He's only returned because he's run out of money and friends. And you want to throw him a party? Why don't you throw me a party? I've been working here faithfully every day. I've been obedient. And the father tries to communicate listen, just because I'm celebrating your son's return and express love to him doesn't mean that I don't have enough love for you as well. And we'd be happy to throw you a party. But the picture we get is an elder brother who will not celebrate the mercy and love of the father because it's no longer on his terms. He's not getting what he thinks he deserves. And, of course, this is the problem with uh, the group of Jews who are gathered here, this notion that the gospel, the grace of God will simply go, simply go out to Gentiles without them having to become Jewish and obey the law in the same fashion and say, they haven't earned this. We've been faithful and have earned it. You know, as Webb uh, began to grow in the faith, he brought up a girl he had been dating from uh, Nashville, and they got married. Her name was Jen. And they, she was a, they were both older, a little bit older, not really old, but they didn't think that they would have kids. And so they, uh, they adopted out of the foster care system, and this became kind of wib's first crisis of faith. They adopted an older boy, and he was more than a handful. Um, in fact, he was incredibly destructive in the house. And after having him for about two years, he, uh, he went through puberty and became violent. Uh, he became aggressive uh, to the point that he actually hurt Jen. And at that point, they said, well, Wib felt like he could never leave the house. And so they had to surrender the boy back to the state. And they felt like miserable failures. uh, But one of the things that that Wib would articulate is, uh, I deserve, I've been faithful. I deserve better than this. What kind of God would write this story for this boy and then write the story that this isn't going well and then write the story of this failure? And said, why would, I, why would I worship that God? And as a result of my faithfulness, don't I deserve for this story to go better? And what we've had to wrestle with was, well, it, does he have a relationship with God based on God operating on his, on his standards and meeting what he thinks is reasonable based on that relationship of faith? Or does he simply follow after God and is willing to walk uh, despite what may be brought his way? In a very similar way, I'm I think we probably grossly underestimate the number of times that Paul had to wrestle with that very question. God, has not my faithfulness overcome my wounding of your church so that uh, you might treat me a little bit better and I don't get the snot knocked out of me in every town that I go? So we see that there is this bent, both in the Jews and in us, where we would say to God, we deserve better. Why don't you honor my faithfulness? Or why would you... Why would you allow me to suffer this giving that I have labored to be uh, responsible before you, right? What kind of graciousness are we talking about? We could even think of it in a fashion um, uh, where we uh, see someone who's blessed, right? Not only in terms of what we're suffering, but do you ever have this feeling inside where you see someone that's blessed and think that just isn't really fair? The notion here is kind of, if you imagine that you... um, you know someone in the church named Joe. And Joe is a God-fearing man. He seeks to raise his family in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He takes his faithfulness and his role in church seriously. And Joe has always wanted a Camaro, but he's never bought one. Why? Because he thinks that would be indulgent. So Joe's neighbor, Eddie, is not doing so good. He's suffering in life. Um, His story isn't great. His job isn't great. And he's down on his luck. And so... Joe shows love to Eddie, shares the gospel with Eddie. Eddie decides to follow Jesus, and Eddie's life dramatically turns around. He gets a new job, and uh, he gets a new girlfriend, and he wins a Camaro at North Park Mall in a lottery. Now, how does Joe feel? Joe says, I'm so happy for you, Eddie, and he smiles, right? He shakes his hand, and inside, he hates Eddie. He would like to devour Eddie because... Joe is thinking, God, how could you do this? I have been faithful. I entered the same lottery. Why didn't I win the Camaro? Don't I deserve it? Right. And in that sense, whether we're suffering things and we, um, we cry out in frustration or we see others blessed and are angry that we don't feel like we've gotten what we deserve, all of these reactions are reminders to us that we have a tendency to push away God's grace and say, I don't want complete mercy. Right? I want to I believe that I deserve certain things from God. And as a result, I expect him to treat me in a certain fashion. We need to be reminded of Edward's words. That the only thing we have contributed to our salvation is the sin that necessitated it. And as a result of that, all of salvation is mercy. And any mercy is to be celebrated. Right? It's not deserved. It's not won. It's not warranted. It is simply the grace of God. What hope is there then except for God's grace? But if our disposition is to reject that grace and to rely on our own performance, where is there hope indeed? Well, the only hope we have is that God loves us despite our foolishness, despite our desire to to put before him things that we believe might be rewarded as the Jews are doing in our story. And isn't that what we see with the story of Saul? Saul has persecuted the way to death. He has stood approvingly as Stephen gave up his life for his faith. He's imprisoned Christians, torn apart families, and done everything he could to try to squash this movement early on. And isn't it interesting that when, um, I always love it, when Jesus speaks to Paul, Saul, who will become Paul, he says, why are you persecuting who? All the Christians, he says, why are you persecuting me? In other words, the blows that are leveled against the body of Christ are leveled against Christ himself. And as he suffers those blows, even though he has been um, uh, suffering the blows from Paul, he reaches out to Paul in love and says, despite what I have suffered, I will uh, love you and put you on a new road. I will make you new. And it's a reminder to us that no story can't be made new. There's no story that can't be redeemed in that fashion. Well, if we are saying that we cannot see God unless he enables us to see, and if one's heart cannot be made flesh unless Jesus makes it so, then what do we do with the Jews in our story? Might we be tempted to grant them a pass? Right? This is a pretty, right, we're getting up into theology 300s now. Right? And if you're, the gears aren't kind of creaking in your head, they should be. You're not, you're not hearing what I'm saying, Right? So I'm saying, we're saying that you can't repent unless God's spirit comes upon you. And that's the only reason that Saul becomes Paul is that Jesus dropped on his head on the Damascus road. That same spirit is not dropping on the heads of the Jews who are gathered in the temple who are ready to stone Paul, and they believe they're going to stone him out of faithfulness. So if the spirit hasn't dropped on their heads, then can they be held accountable for not repenting at the extension of God's grace through the preaching of Paul? Tough question. It's a question which I think we have to enter into a bit of mystery and confess at one and the same time that yes, they can't repent without God's spirit, uh, but yes, they are held responsible. And how do we all work this out logically? I don't think that we can entirely. Um, but I do think that we do have a sense in which, and almost, I think this sense is important because I think it's a warning to us, that grace in some ways is resistible. Right. Now, you might get your feathers ruffled a little bit because you're thinking I and tulip is irresistible grace. Right? And that doesn't mean that all grace is uh, not resistible. And we have lots of examples in the New Testament of grace being resisted. Certainly in the parable of the prodigal son, the impression we receive is that the elder brother does not repent and go in and join the celebration. Or we might think not of a parable, but of the rich young ruler, who even though he has the gracious invitation of the walking, living, breathing Savior himself to enter into abundant life, he says, no one walks away in sadness. Why? Because he can't part with his money. He would prefer to hang on to his riches rather than to walk with Jesus or we might think of the parable of the sower, in which the word goes forth but lands in different types of soils and takes different, uh, different levels of roots, and some die out and some thrive. Or we could think of Hebrews six and ten, which unquestionably describes communities that have received and celebrated God's grace to some extent, only in the way, in the end, to walk away and to be judged for turning their back on the risen Christ. We could say, you know, perhaps that saving grace is. Uh, is irresistible or perhaps that God's call is irresistible. But I don't know that it's entirely helpful to say in an unnuanced fashion that God's grace is irresistible. There are plenty. The New Testament is replete with examples of that grace being resisted, one of them being right here with the Jews who have been exposed to Paul's declaration that Jesus is Messiah, and yet they turn in the other direction. The point here is that you have a choice. There are two groups of Jews who have responded to Jesus completely differently. And you sitting here this morning have heard grace, all right, and that God has shown you mercy and invited you to participate in his family for the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that grace wants to shape your heart and make it more flesh. And it wants to make you see better than you see today. But you can resist it. You can go home today and you can get busy about your schedule and put it on the back shelf and think about other things and not actually press into that grace that is extended through the word of God. And in that, I think we better be warned. Do you think that God takes the death of his son so lightly? From a historical perspective, this is really a very poignant moment because even as the Jews throw dust in the air and decide that they will discard Paul, and Luke has told us just previously the doors of the temple are shut and the temple will never occur again in the story of Christianity, Rome is getting increasingly frustrated. And just a few years from when this passage is written, Rome will bear down on Jerusalem like a steamroller over soft asphalt, and it will raise it to the ground, and barely a stone will be left upon a stone of the temple. When they come upon Jerusalem. Why? And that's certainly part of God's judgment prophesied in the Gospels. For the rejection of Jesus as Messiah. For resisting the grace of God extended to them. So do you stand closer to judgment than you should? Do you take lightly the death of the Son of God? And do you mock his grace with your disobedience? Or like Paul, have you surrendered yourself to mercy and grace? And of course, if you're honest and really thinking about your heart and answering that question, you have to say it's both, right? Particularly if you're a follower of Jesus. Say, yes, I'm trying to surrender, but yes, I mock God's grace all the time with my disobedience. One and the same is true of me all the time, and that is why we celebrate the God of mercy and compassion, the God who would overlook, or not even over, overlooks the wrong word, knows full well what Saul has done against the church and says, Saul, I will make you Paul. I will make you new, and there is no story that cannot be redeemed. So as you come this morning, God says to you, even as you partake of the table, of course you have spurned my grace. Of course you deserve judgment, but my son has stood for you in that judgment. Come and be nourished. Let's pray. God, for your mercy and forgiveness and grace extended to us, we give you thanks this morning. And we do ask that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have mocked your grace with our disobedience. We really, at times, impress ourselves with uh, the fickleness of our hearts and our willingness to follow after the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, uh, which constantly distracts. So instead, would you meet us here at this table And in your grace and mercy, continue to make us new. And help us to surrender, to give up the stories of this world and the things that we are taught to value. And instead, to cling closely to you. In fact, to be found united to you as the branches are to the vine. That we might be part of your family and do your work in this world for the days that you entrust to us. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.